you're in first through third grade, you can slip out to our children's church service at this time. The rest of us are turning to the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 1. The next to last verse of that hymn we just sang introduces a concept to us that I think many struggle with. We want to believe it in our hearts and in our minds. We want to live it out in our lives, but often we come to a a mental block or a faith block, if you will, almost, of saying, I want to live as though riches I heed not, but I treasure Christ as my all, as he's my vision. But how do I practically do that? Because I have to put bread on the table. I need to provide for my family. So how do I labor and toil in this life and yet still treasure Christ as all in all, And I'd like to submit to you this morning that that is perhaps a lesson and a principle that takes years of the Christian life in order to fully grasp and in order to live out what I'd like to do for those of you who are struggling with that question, maybe offer the beginning of the answer for you as Kohelet, the preacher here in verse 1 of Ecclesiastes chapter 1, outlines for us what living as a citizen of heaven looks like when we live as a citizen of this earth. As we live as a citizen of this earth. Let's read Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Our text actually is verses 3 through 11 this morning. We'll read beginning in verse 1 down through verse 11. So please direct your attention to the text. A beautiful view of all of you as I read is the tops of your head as you look down at your scriptures as we have a three-way conversation between me and you and the Holy Scriptures this morning. So let's look down and read verses 1 through 11. The words of the preacher there, we've named him Kohelet, that is his Hebrew name, the one who gathers the group together to, to tell them his lesson. Preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, he begins his lesson to the group that's gathered there as Solomon teaches. He says, Havel of Havel, vanity of vanities, breath of breath, says the preacher. Breath of breath, futility of futilities, all is futility. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said? See, this is new. It's already been in ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things. Yet to be among those who come after. And then we can insert verse 3 at the end as well, as this is his thesis that he gave at the beginning. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under 
the Son. Father, as we look into your word, may your spirit give guidance, may your spirit give illumination as we take a realist look at life around us and find grace and hope in a relationship with you. In your name we pray. Amen. This passage is introduced in verse 3. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? This passage revolves around the concept of profit or investment. Maybe you have an investment that you've been looking at recently, and your cry has been vanity of vanities. There are two words we need to understand in order to understand the passage before us this morning. One is the word gain, and the other is the word toil. Because the the preacher gives this statement, he gives this question to which the answer is, it's, it's futile, it's breath, it's vanity, the profit that's gained by toil. But in order to understand kind of the nuance at what the preacher's getting at here, we need to understand these two words. Ecclesiastes is going to repeat itself often, but each each passage that we're going to go through gives a new little nuance to the overarching theme that Solomon wants us to see. And the nuance that he wants us to see in this passage is the circular toil of life under the sun, of life on this earth, and to ask the question whether or not it actually has any gain. The word gain there means advantage. It's football season in the college realm, and the advantage that each group is seeking to accomplish in four downs is the advantage of ten yards. It's the gain, the forward progress. And if they make that gain in four downs, then they have another goal, and that goal is the exact same. Ten more yards, right? Maybe they accomplish less than their purpose. Maybe their advantage is only four yards. Or maybe in in a stroke of genius, the advantage would be 15 yards or 20. Or maybe even a touchdown would be their profit on that run, on that pass on that play. And so this concept of gain has the idea of gaining advantage, of gaining something. It's actually a business term that as you sell and buy, you would earn a profit. Money seems to be a mystery to many people. It's very simple. It doesn't mean it's easy, but the concept's very simple. If you spend less than you make, you'll always have enough to go around. But it's harder than it sounds, isn't it? Especially in such a materialistic culture. Profit, gain, advantage, getting one foot up. What gain is there? The second word we need to understand is the word toil. The word toil. Perhaps when you see the word toil, you think of work because your work is toil. For some of you, your job is something that you love to do, and so maybe your work is a little bit less toil. But this word toil means trouble, it means laboring, it means misery that results from work not coming easily. You know, work is not a result of the fall. The goal of life is not to stop 
working, that would eventually result in total misery for you. You were created to work. Work was given to Adam and Eve before sin ever entered the garden. Work is given to the angels in which they enjoy it to the greatest extent. Work will be given to us in the new heavens and the new earth. As we take dominion and subdue all things under the lordship of Jesus Christ. It's not work that's a problem. It's the toil that comes with the work. It's the sweat. It's the, the hard work. It's planting a seed and, and not having it produce like, you, like it should, right? It's, it's trying to build something and it coming out crooked. It's trying to paint something and, and making a mistake, It's cooking something and and having so much hope in this one meal only to realize that it was supposed to be 350 degrees for an hour, not 550 degrees for an hour. And that work that was intended to be so joyful for you to participate in turns into toil because toil is part of the curse. As If we had time, we could go back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and see the beauty of creation and the the work that God gave Adam to do in which everything that he worked out would go right. And wouldn't it be amazing if everything you planted grew to its greatest purpose? If every job that you did, you did perfectly with no problems. I recently did an update to our kitchen. An update is a little bit of of a... nice term because we basically destroyed everything and rebuilt the entire entire kitchen okay and when I say we it was primarily me because I promised my wife when we built the house when we bought the house the kitchen wasn't set up the way we wanted I said you know what we'll redo the kitchen in in the next three or four years we'll redo the kitchen and so um so I put the work in and and I redid our kitchen and some people walk in say oh it looks really nice but I always say don't look too close right because I know where every cabinet, each one is a little bit crooked. Have you ever tried to do crown molding? It's a good way to lose your sanctification quickly, right? Some trim carpenters make it look so easy. And I bought two extra pieces on top of what it said I needed, including the overage, because I knew it was going to be awful. And by the time I got to the end, I had used everything. And I had one piece that I had cut crooked. And so I had to slice it and, and dice it and splice it and all this kind of stuff, right? And, and, and then you have caulk that you use to cover all the holes. And then you paint it to try to cover up all the mistakes. And you know it's not right. And it's so frustrating. And you lay tile and it's just a little bit crooked. Or things don't work the way they're supposed to. That's toil. It's saying, I spend my life working in this way, and I feel as though I'm spinning my wheels or I'm messing up because my work includes toil, it includes labor, it includes trouble, it includes anxiety. That I build only to have it break, or I build only to have it come out crooked. And the, the, the work part of that, that your heart actually yearns for, is a gift given by God that we have a responsibility to work with the toil that comes with it is part of the curse. And so in your toiling, in your labor, in all of your endeavors, is there any gain to that? Is there any advantage? To go back to the football illustration, it gets handed off to the running back, and the running back 
runs into the sea of gigantic men. You cannot give, pay me enough money to like go this Saturday and put on a helmet and pads and run into those guys, those defensive linemen, 6'6", 350. I mean, just massive giants who are trying to kill you, right? And often they'll run into the pack and the pack pushes them and their legs are churning and they are trying so hard and they're not going anywhere. And some of us feel like that in life, don't we? That it's like, I I, I take what I'm supposed to do, I do what I'm supposed to do, I run forward only to be hit by a wall and I'm churning and I'm pushing forward and I'm not gaining anything. Is there any gain to the toil in this life? Maybe you're here and you're asking the question this way this morning. I've been working 20 or 30 years, I've been making money and I'm not quite sure what happened to all of it. Has there been any profit to my hard work and labor? Thought as I got older I would make more money and that it would mean that I'd have more money in my bank account or more money to spend, but what profit has all of this labor been for me? I've done all of this and it hasn't given me anything. I've gotten to the end of my life and I thought I would be happy. I've suffered for so long so I could retire and have it good, but I've retired only to find that I don't like myself very much and all the time I'm spending with myself has turned out pretty terrible, you know? Has there been any gain to all this profit? Jesus actually asked the same question in Matthew chapter 16, but he asked it this way. In a New Testament context, Jesus asked in Matthew 16, 26, what will it profit, there's our word, what will it gain? What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? What you'll find if you trace this concept through Scripture is that often this concept of gaining or profiting in this life is tied to the end times. We call it eschatology. It's got an eschatological focus, meaning that it's tied to God's judgment at the end. What profit does this life have? And then the author usually turns and says, this life is futile, it's a breath, but yet the life to come lasts forever. And Jesus does the same thing. What shall a man give in return for his soul? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he's done. The lasting profit. What will it be if you gain everything in this world only to lose everything in the next? In order to understand this concept of profit and gain, we have to recognize and remember from last week that Solomon here is making a value statement. He's placing value on something. Yes, you can make good financial investments on this earth and you can make a sizable financial return in those. Become wealthy. Yes, you can work hard to produce a product that you're proud of. A product that works well and may even help other people in their lives. You may come to fame because of circumstances in your life. And thus you can earn status and recognition here on this earth. You may even invent something novel that makes life easier and you are gratified by seeing other people use whatever you've invented. But does any of this actually hold value in answering life's deeper questions, is what he's saying. 
Does this hold any value to help you find your purpose and your meaning? Does any of your material gain provide any lasting purpose for you? How do you find purpose in a futile life living under the sun on this earth? This is the question we're going to answer this morning. You can say it this way, a doctor may find his purpose in helping people find healing in their life, but it's it's a short-lived purpose when that person just gets sick again. Or you may find purpose in putting together a car that works well only to find that purpose thwarted when the car breaks down. As the author gives us the opening question of verse 3, so I'm going to give you the conclusion at the beginning of the message as it's going to kind of guide us through this passage. The conclusion is this. What is done in this life brings eternal profit only, only, when the Christian lives in this world for the glory of God. It brings eternal profit only when the Christian lives in this world for the glory of God. Work on this earth in and of itself provides no lasting satisfaction. It does provide fulfillment in the short term. But we can actually find purpose when we do it for the glory of God. Solomon is once again trying to prove to his readers that life is futile. Maybe perhaps you're here and um, you weren't here last week, or maybe you were here last week and you're still not convinced that all is havel. It's all a breath. It's all a vapor. It's all fleeting. If you're not convinced, I have two illustrations straight from the mouth of Solomon for you. The first is the illustration of creation in verses 4 through 7. Verse 4, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Paul here is building a contrast between the way that the earth lasts from generation to generation, but how humans don't. That the earth continues. That the field that's just outside of our church building has been there for thousands of years. But you have not. And one farmer may farm it now, and a different farmer may farm it in the next ten years, and certainly another farmer will farm it if it's still there in a hundred years or even 30 or 40, but the earth's always been there. Paul is obviously not making some sort of geological or scientific statement. He's making a proverbial observation here. You can travel to the Holy Land and see the same mountains, the same hills, the same valleys, the same sand, the same rocks, and the same boulders as King Solomon saw when he penned these words. Billions and billions of people have died since that time, and yet the landscape is still the same. I had a reminder of this as a child when my grandfather, who is now in heaven, brought out a box. I still remember sitting, they had a lake house next to Lake Hartwell in Anderson, South Carolina, and, and we were at the lake house, and my, my grandfather went to the back room, and he brought out this little black metal box. I still remember it because when it opened, it creaked had a lock that didn't work anymore, and he brought it out, and he said, kids, I want to show you something, and we gathered around, and he opened up this creaky metal box that had rust on it, and inside were arrowheads that he had found, 
And he told us a story of as a boy, they would walk dry creek beds and go into the open fields and they would find dozens of flint arrowheads left there by the Native Americans who had been there so many years ago. Signs of life from people who no longer lived. One day people might do that in your room or in your house. I mean, you realize everybody's life basically ends in the same estate sale, right? Like you love your stuff. But everybody else has a dollar value for it. It's priceless to you, to you, but to them, it's an estate sale. Whatever people don't want to buy, it will be donated. We have these, these signs. Maybe we could go out west and look at the caves and see the etchings, the signs of civilizations gone by. And it reminds us that the earth remains, but people don't. You want a biblical example of this? Go to Genesis chapter five and just read one chapter of Scripture and recognize that that gives you over sixteen hundred and fifty years of history in one chapter of the Bible. Just one chapter, one thousand six hundred and fifty years. It would be like if somebody sat down and in one chapter cataloged everything that's happened from the Edict of Milan in three thirteen all the way to today, Constantine to today, in one chapter. Following one line. And you say, but there's so much you didn't talk about. Yeah, that's the point. So people come and go, but the earth remains. Generations come and generations go, yet the earth remains. Psalm chapter 89, verses 47 and 48. Remember, O Lord, how short my time is. For what havel, for what vanity, you've created all the children of man. What a breath. Verse 48, Psalm 89. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of the grave? Think about it this way. Just 100 years from now, in 2122, every single person who is alive today will be gone, and every person who was alive at that point would have not been born yet, have been born yet. In just 100 years. Think, I mean, that's a shocking thought. I remember when I went back to my alma mater just three years after graduating. And I didn't recognize anybody. I'm like, these are just kids. So it turns over. It turns over. If you're trying to find purpose by living forever, you're doomed to misery and failure, friend. Yet the believer can find comfort that we can live in faith, we can die in faith, and find hope in glorifying God while we're here. Secondly, not only does the earth remain forever, but the sun and the wind rush aimlessly about in verses 5 and 6. As I read these verses, I want you to picture that the sun and the wind are on 465 around Indianapolis. That, you know, that goes 465 east, that turns into south, that turns into west, that turns into north, and that turns into east again, because it's just a giant circle. You haven't looked at a map? Giant circle on Indianapolis. So imagine the sun and the wind on 465, and you'll chuckle a little bit when you read verses 5 and 6. The sun rises and the sun goes down. It hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, and around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits, the wind returns. I mean, think about it. 
you can go north as far as you want, and you're eventually going to start going south again. It's just, the earth's just a, a circle, right? Do you ever watch NASCAR? Not a NASCAR fan, but I grew up in South Carolina. I've been to a NASCAR race. I didn't like NASCAR until I went to a race. Tons of rednecks. I was one of them. I say that in a loving way. You feel the engines as they come by in your chest. You can actually feel the sound as it rumbles, as it boom, goes screaming by. I've always wanted to be a NASCAR coach. It'd be like the easiest job in the whole world. And turn left. You know. And get ready. Turn left. You know. <laughs> turn left again. You know, and you just keep turning left all the way around. It cycles. On and on and on. Solomon's saying, this is what nature shows us. It's the nature's version of an exercise treadmill. Running and running and running, only to end up where you started. The wind blows south long enough, and it's blowing north again. It blows east long enough, and all of a sudden, it's, well, that's still going east. So let's go north to south, okay? Just continues north to south, north to south, over and over and over again. The sun rises every day, it sets every evening, and it does the exact same thing the next day. You think your life's monotonous right? The streams never fulfill their purpose. Verse 7, all the streams run to the sea. The sea is not full. You're like, oh, I never thought about that. Yeah. Place where the streams flow, there they flow again. They just keep going. You ever wonder where the river gets all its water? From, from the streams and the tributaries. Yeah, where, they, where do they get their water? Well, from the little creeks. Well, where do they get their water? From the spring. Yeah, but where does it get its water? Stop asking questions, you know? It's a cycle. And I'm sure some t- scientists can explain it to you. But it's a cycle. It, it just goes and goes and goes. Go stand by the St. Joe River and watch it flowing by and realize that it always does that. Even when you're not there. It just keeps going. And going and going and going. Go to a waterfall and listen to it Roar. In North Carolina, we would take hikes to this 135-foot waterfall as it poured over the rocks, the mist coming off, and it's deafening so much so that if you get close enough, you can't hear unless you yell. And then you walk away and you go, man, that was neat. But it's still going. And it will continue to go. And continue and continue and continue because it never stops. It goes and goes and goes and all these Streams run to the ocean, and the ocean's never full. It just keeps going, going, and going. Nature's treadmill, nature's hamster wheel. Everything around you in a state is in a state of cycling this way. Some of you are dreading winter to come, but the hope is that spring is coming. But in Michigan, we don't really have spring; we have winter and then summer. Right? What would happen if summer never came? That'd be awful. But the hope that we have is that summer's coming. It's in a cycle. It's important to remember that nature is subjected to futility in the sense that your toil here on this earth will be futile in the sense that it will never fully accomplish its purpose. You'll always need to go back. But that, that actually wasn't the reason 
or that it wasn't the way that the earth was created. Romans chapter 8, I encourage you, if this piques your interest, I know I'm always saying, go back and study this verse, go back and study this verse, but if this concept piques your interest, this will be a passage to go back and study. I want to read you just verses 19 to 22 of Romans 8. It says this, For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the Son of God. Creation, the world is groaning. She's waiting. Why? For because creation, verse 20 of Romans 8, was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. It's part of the curse. However, there's hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That creation itself is groaning. That, that, the, that earthquakes and this destruction is the world groaning in on itself, longing for that day for the return of Christ when Jesus comes and he'll set creation free from this vanity. What does that mean, that the rivers will only run if the ocean needs water? I don't know. But that would be cool, right? Where's the river? Ah, the ocean's full, you know? It'll turn on tomorrow when it needs more water. I don't know. But there's a sense in which this futility, this, this vanity of, of nature will one day be released, that the, the earth is groaning even in the pains of, of childbirth, is what Romans 8 says. When God sends Jesus, to, when the Father sends Jesus to conquer sin, even the earth will breathe a sigh of relief as its chains are broken. Because of the curse of sin, all of this natural world is futile. It's, it's a breath. It's, it's longing to be free. Until that time comes, the question remains, is there any profit, is there any gain to be made? Is the sun accomplishing its mission or is it just on a cycle? Is the rivers accomplishing their mission? Not only does creation serve as a testament to the earth's futility, but so does our human experience. Look at reading in verse 8. Two illustrations, creation and human experience. Experience, verse 8, all things are full of weariness, a man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. People rush to work so they can rush home. Continually striving and struggling to the point of exhaustion, only to ask yourself if you made any difference. Says, my eyes are never satisfied. No film will be so amazing that I'll never want to not watch another movie, right? I remember gathering around with my family to watch Toy Story 4. Remember as, a, as an older child beginning the Toy Story franchise, right? Really as a teenager, college student, whenever that came out, I don't remember when it was, but way back when. And then slowly, Toy Story 2, Toy Story 3, Toy Story 4. I was so excited for my kids to experience the same experience that I had with these movies. And so we watched this Toy Story 4, and at the end of the movie, what's the one question on my mind? I wonder if there's going to be a 5, you know? It's always the next. It's never, sequel is never done. And if it is done, you're disappointed. My ears never filled with enough hearing. I currently have over 8,000 songs in my iTunes library. 
I checked this week it would take me 16 and a half days of me playing things nonstop for 24 hours a day in order for all everything in the library to be listened to back to back to back to back. Not all of them are songs, some are sermons, some are this, some are that, whatever. 16 and a half days. And yet a new album comes out from a group that I like and I still get excited. Because maybe the next one will be better. Right? Your ears are never full. Never be satisfied. Do I have any hope for satisfaction? Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Come to me, all you who, are la- uh, all you who labor and are heavy laden, this toil that weighs on your shoulders, come to me, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, Jesus says. You learn of me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and there you will find rest for your soul. Weariness finds rest when it's thrown at the feet of Christ. Your soul finds fulfillment when you look to Christ alone in your relationship with him as the thing to find satisfaction in. No earthly experience satisfies. No novelty is actually new. Look at verses 9 and 10. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing which it is said, see, this is new. It's already been in the ages before us. A great example of this would be any type of fashion. I remember as a high schooler uh, being enthralled with a certain type of, I don't remember what it was, whether it was a pants or a shirt or a certain fashion something, and I went out and bought it and came home and said, Dad, look at the newest thing. And he said, yeah, I remember when that was popular when I was a kid. I'm like, no, no, this is different. He's like, no, it's not. It's the exact same thing. It's just got a different label on it. Because everything goes in a cycle. There's nothing really new. I was listening to a preacher this week, and he said, you say something's not new. You say, well, no, something is new. We put a man on the moon. It's an older sermon. And he says, yeah, but when he got there, what's he supposed to do? Look at the earth? Stand there? Like all of these experiences, they aren't really new. They don't really introduce anything new into our lives. I mean, The next iPhone is great, but it it just lets you communicate with people and learn stuff, right? If you've been doing that for a long time, you just had to go to the library or talk face-to-face, which may actually have been a whole lot more healthier, but we won't get off on all that, right? There's nothing new. Humans, we discover what God has already created. We discover the way things that God created them to be. We, we discover math. One plus one equals two. Not because humans created something new, but because we discovered the way that God always intended it to be. Music has an eight-note scale because God created it that way. And when somebody sat down at the first instrument and played music, they didn't create an eight-note scale. They discovered it. Nothing new. It's havel, it's vanity, it's, it's a breath, right? Technology will continue to advance, but it will co- to continue to fall short of fulfilling man's greater purpose. So don't put your hopes in technology. Will there be something that will make your life easier, maybe? Will there be something that will ma- give your life less pain, maybe, as medical uh, advances continue? 
There'll be things in life that will help you do more in less time. Well, if that's a good thing, maybe. There's nothing new. Verse 11, the sucker punch to it all, everything will be forgotten. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things among those who come after. Amazing men that we've all heard of, like Harvey Habel, right? Wasn't he an awesome guy? You don't know him? He invented the light socket. How can you not know him? It changed everything. Or Willis Carrier. You remember him, right? He invented air conditioning, that blessed man. I can't believe you don't know who he is. Or Philo Farnsworth. Surely you've heard of him. He invented television. Don't you know these men or Chester Arthur? He was a president of the United States and nobody knows who he is. Chester Arthur. Some of you are like, I had to memorize his name. But if you didn't memorize his name, you have no clue who the guy is. He's known because he had a giant mustache. What a thing to be known for, right? You don't know them. Because all will be forgotten. How many of you here know the first and last name of all eight of your great-grandparents? I mean, that's flesh and blood. Well, that means that your name will be forgotten in just three generations. <gasps> Whoa! But my Instagram account. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> I start hyperventilating when, when I'm struck with reality. Say, Pastor, you're mean. I'm not mean, friends. I'm simply pointing out what, what Kohelet wants you to see, what the preacher wants you to see. Because this is reality. And as we landed on last week, it does no good to pretend like it's not true. What helps us is to recognize what's true and live in light of eternity. You know, it's not a problem that you'll be forgotten in three generations unless your goal is to be remembered. If your goal is to lift high the name of Jesus, to make Jesus' name the greatest of all names, to slip into the background as the King of Kings takes center stage, if this is your goal, then this reality is not a shock. Because Jesus' name will go on after you're forgotten. And so we lift high the name of Jesus together celebrating what will be remembered. You see, friend, this is where the believer finds purpose in the midst of futility. You find purpose in recognizing the vapor that life is, the mist, the futility, the havel, and, and, and the, the breath. And you recognize that. And so you place all your eggs in Christ's basket. It makes you go all in on what really matters. Psalm chapter 9, I want to read this for you, verses 5 through 10. Listen carefully. 
The psalmist speaking to God says, You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established His throne for justice. And He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with righteousness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. He's a stronghold in the times of trouble. And those who know Your name put their trust in You. For You, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek You. That if you put your hope and trust in something of this world, you will end up striving after the wind, as the preacher tells us. You'll end up trying to catch something that you can't catch. You'll try to catch a cloud in a jar. you're, you're, You're striving for something that's futile. But what but yet when you lay hold of Christ, you lay hold of eternity. And you lay hold of the rock of ages and you lay hold of Jesus who's reigning forever at the right hand of the throne of, the God, of God on high. And you, you lay hold of something that lasts. It's like eating a steak when you've been used to eating fish. Fish is almost meat, you know? And it's like you're there like I've been eating salmon and yet my heart longs for more. Give me a ribeye, you know? And then I get a hold of, of, of living for eternity. And it's like, yes, Jesus wins. Jesus lasts. Teenagers, listen to me. If you can get this at your age, how different your life will look. How different your life will look than those around you when you go to college who are trying their best to, to just do something that will make them prominent or popular when you realize it's vanity. How different this will make your life when those around you are filled with the rat race of trying to to earn riches that they think will satisfy. And yet you can go to work recognizing that as you work for the glory of God and you're faithful, you have a testimony for Him through your life or if possible through your words, that your life can make a difference for the kingdom of God. And so your work, even your daily work in a secular environment has a totally different purpose. Colossians 3, 23 and 24, whatever you do, work heartily is for the Lord and not for men. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Son, not for this world, the Son of God knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. See how it's always tied to this judgment focus? Whenever you see this, it's, it's tied to future. Work hard here for God's glory because glory is coming. Work hard here for Jesus because you'll be rewarded in the future. So whether you drink, eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the what? The glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 The responsibility of every human is to accept Christ by faith, to live in faith, and to die in faith with the goal that God's name would be magnified with your life. The question we still have to answer, which is what I'd like to do in our few remaining minutes, is how do I do this? 
I've structured the sermon hopefully to convince you that this is true, both through Scripture and through your own experiences. And now we're left with a question. Joe, this is great. We've been talking up here, and, and I've got to go to work tomorrow morning, though, right? I've got to put bread on my table. What am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to throw it all away and go be a hermit, a monk in a cave, or a, a nun in, in, some, in some convent and live by myself to be like, well, where, what am I supposed to do with this? So I'm going to give you five things. They aren't the only five, but perhaps there'll be five things that can help you as you set out on this course of life. Number one, this would be all under the heading of how do I glorify God with my life? Okay, how do I glorify God with my life? So you will only find lasting purpose if your life is lived to the glory of God to lift up his name instead of your own. So how do I do this? These are no order, they're just coming out of my, my biblical meditation and some reading that I did this week. Number one, continually confess your sin and be restored in a right relationship with God. You can say confess and repent. It's very simple. Don't harbor sin, friend. Your life's not about you, it's about God, so don't waste time. Don't waste your life. Don't spend your life living in unconfessed, unrepentant sin. If you're a child of God, whenever you sin, then God convicts. That's one of the proof evidences of a child of God is that a child of God is chastened, according to Hebrews chapter 4. Chastened by God. Sorry, Hebrews chapter 12. Chastened by God. And so, when you're under conviction, confess, repent, be restored. If you're here and you're living on conviction of your sin, friend, get on your knees. Give glory to God by recognizing your life's not your own. You belong to him. You've been living in disobedience. So you confess, you repent, you find restoration in your life with him. And you can be restored in living your life. Jonathan Edwards said it this way, from time to time in scripture, embracing and practicing true religion. His phrase, if you know Jonathan Edwards at all, that phrase, true religion, is, is how he would explain living the Christian life in a genuine way. Okay, a genuine Christian. True religion. And repenting of sin and turning to holiness is expressed by glorifying God. In other words, the genuine Christian life, glorifying God, is living the real Christian life by repenting and turning to Christ. This is the sum and the end of the whole matter. Number two. Number one, continually confess and be restored. Number two, give praise to God even for the small things in your life. What if you made it a habit in your life to use the phrase, isn't God so good? I got to go to church today. Isn't God so good? That lunch was amazing. Isn't God so good? I tried to practice this this morning, driving to, to church. There's this tree that's just exploding in color, right? Orange, red, still some green left. It looks, this 3D, it just looks beautiful. And it totally changes. You'd be like, hey, look at that tree. That's nice. Other than say, isn't God good that he would allow us to see that? I mean, God could have made it so leaves die, they crumple, you know, they turn brown. They're dead. Green, brown, in your yard, frustration, right? 
But it's not that way. It's at least before they end up in your yard and you're frustrated about them, at least they turn these bright colors. So we can step outside and we can say, look at how good God is, that he would allow us to see that. There are people living in the country who would love to see that. Some people drive here to see those colors, right? Isn't God so good? Isn't God so good to give us another day to live for his glory? Let me tell you what God's doing in my life. Isn't God so good that this happened? Man, it was hard, but you know what? I'm growing through it. My faith is deepening. Isn't God so good? Make that a normal part of your life. Isn't God good? Isn't God good? Number three, believe what God says. Believe what God says. How do you glorify God with your life, friend? You can believe what he says. John Murray said this, giving glory to God is being fully persuaded that what he has promised, he is able also to perform. Believe what God says. What promise in Scripture are you struggling to believe right now? When you believe that promise, that means your life reflects that truth. You give glory to God. Fourthly, again, these are in no order necessarily. Maybe this one could go first. Identify yourself first and foremost as a disciple of Christ. It's who I am. It's what I do. I'm not first a husband. I'm not first a father. I'm not, I'm not first a pastor. I'm not. I'm not first a person who enjoys this hobby or this hobby or does this or does this. I'm not first a person who works in this arena. I'm first and foremost a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's who I am. It's what defines what I do. So everywhere I go, whether I go to the grocery store, whether I go to the the theater, whether I go to home, whether I go here or there, whether I go to work, whether I go on vacation, whether I participate in a hobby, it's all centered around this concept and this idea that I'm a disciple of Christ, and so that defines some of those things for me. It makes the decision on where you should and should not go on vacation. It makes the decision as to where you should not work and where you should work. It makes the decision as to what your hobby should be. It makes the decision for you as to what your entertainment should be. Because you're identifying yourself first and foremost as a disciple of Jesus Christ who does all those things. And so my life revolves around that center hub. We've used it in the past. The idea of a bicycle wheel of Jesus Christ in the center and the spokes driving out from that is everything in your life. And everything in your life is defined that way. That you are first and foremost a disciple of Christ. You've got a glory in that way. And fifthly, wrapping this up, pursue him through everything in your life. I've used this illustration before many years ago. I'll use it again. When I was in college, I went to a, a, a school that had a, a dining common, and for lunch, we would go eat lunch, and you had those trays that had the different compartments. You know, and you have the big compartment for your meat, and you have the compartment for your veggies, and the compartment for your mashed potatoes, because you don't want the gravy getting everywhere, right? So you've got these different compartments. And a lot of us think that glorifying God with our life is giving God the biggest compartment, don't we? Okay, God, I'll, I'll give you all day Sunday. I mean, I'm a good Christian. I even go to Sunday night church. God loves me a lot, right? And I'm glorifying God with my life. 
because I give God this big portion. And then Monday through Friday, I do my own thing. I mean, God doesn't want that, does he? I mean, I'm already giving him Sunday. He's got the biggest portion there. Glorifying God in your life, living for the glory of God, is like taking a giant bowl and putting everything in it and dumping God on top of it and stirring it all up. Like a giant bowl of, you know what, uh, you know what a musco casserole is? A musco casserole is when you open up your fridge and everything that must go, you put it in a casserole. You know, and so you make musco casserole. And so it's like making a giant musco casserole. And God is just all through it. Like everything in your life is God. That doesn't mean that I go, I'm a hermit somewhere and all I do is read the Bible and pray. It means through every area of my life, I've got God woven in everything. And you may not be able to talk about the gospel at work. That's fine. Live the gospel. Live out patience, love, kindness, the fruit of the Spirit. Ask God to make you this tree that's just got fruit hanging all over it that looks like Jesus, right? So when people walk by and they bump you, you're dropping love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You can do that at work. Talk about God. Have family worship around the table. Eat dinner together as much as possible and end it with a prayer reading a chapter of scripture. Insert God into every area of your life and live for his glory so that when you're gone, people are like, you remember, what's his face at work? I don't remember his name. But man, he loved God a lot. And so I'm going to go to his funeral. Or he used to tell me all the time when he was reading the Bible, maybe I should read the Bible. I don't remember his name, but I remember his God. That's the goal. In this futility of life, find purpose in living for Christ. This is kind of all summed up in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. That when you live in Christ, glorifying God with your life, you find a purpose that is not futile, that is not a breath, but is lasting. You can experience for all of eternity. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Scriptures that reminds us of the reality of life, the certainty of eternity, the reality of the brevity and the temporal nature of this world, our experiences in this world, and the eternal nature of your character and our relationship with you. May we live for your honor and your glory. May we lift high the name of Jesus. May you give us the gift of the freedom of self-forgetfulness. That we would fade into the background as your story is lived through us. And may we find a greater purpose through living for your honor and your glory.